In case of a nuclear attack, the protection of records is essential. If this country is to carry on its economy... to Western Fringe, a podcast about Colorado's weird history. I'm your host, Heidi Beadle, and today we're at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. For the last few weeks, I've been working on some real weird stuff. I don't know if I'm about to have some kind of psychotic break to book in what might just be a manic episode with some extreme hyper-focus, or if I am mainlining the secret truths of the universe. Maybe a little of both, Right. I started this season with the episode about MK Ultra Hypnotism Studies at the University of Denver, and then we looked into the massive Christian influence operation that is Focus on the Family, and then the abusive international Christian missionary cult, Youth with a Mission, and then we had that bonus episode about demons. Today's episode is where, in a lot of ways, all of those chickens will come home to roost. MKUltra's Subproject 84 looked specifically at Pentecostal churches and how they induced a trance state in subjects. According to a May 1960 memo, For the past one and one-half years, a study has been conducted on the trance phenomena occurring in Pentecostal churches, with the view toward understanding their relationship to other states of consciousness. A considerable amount of observational data is now available and is in the process of being analyzed. As a part of this study, the personal experiences which one might expect of good hypnotic subjects and Pentecostal church members who are trance reactors and non-trance reactors are being investigated. The use of trance states and self-hypnosis is also an aspect of occult practitioners and followers of Aleister Crowley. Rosaline Norton, a Crowley adherent and Australian artist, claimed to use self-hypnosis to commune with demons and entities that she then painted. L. Ron Hubbard, who we will discuss about at length in the next episode, and who we talked about in the Robert Heinlein episode, used a process he called automatic writing, a form of channeling uh, to write down all the wisdom or technology of Scientology. In today's episode, those two diametrically opposed belief systems, Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity and occult practices, will intersect with tragic results. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4, New Life, Same as the Old Life. Pull off the highway in Missouri and low our hearts were heavy laden. Made for the chapel with some spray paint for all the things we'd held in secret. Lord, lift up these lifeless bones. 
Light cascading through the windows All the rainbow's heavy tones He has fixed his sign in the sky He has raised me from the pit And set me high New Life Church was founded in Colorado Springs in 1984 by Ted Haggard, who 12 years prior had seen Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, which I discussed in the YWAM episode, speak at Explo 72. Haggard went on to Oral Roberts University and was the mentee of Jack Hayford, who ran a Pentecostal megachurch in Van Nuys, California. Hayford basically invented the concept of the megachurch that we see today. At his peak, Haggard led his own association of around 300 churches, and in 2003 was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, which represented 45,000 churches and 30 million Christians. In Colorado Springs, New Life operated from a campus in northern Colorado Springs and had a congregation of 14,000, which Haggard bragged was over 1% of Colorado Springs' total population. One of the things that New Life engaged in was this practice called spiritual warfare. This is from a 2009 Religion Dispatches article. In 1996, a team from Ted Haggard's New Life Church flew to Mali and began furtively anointing entire towns with cooking oil. The strangeness of it gripped Dutch missionary René Holvast, who later wrote, It was confusing and produced a growing uneasiness. It did not seem to fit our current evangelical, theological, and anthropological textbooks. The team from Haggard's Church was a forerunner in a missionary wave that has washed over the world since the early 90s, bringing what Holvast calls a new paradigm. Rene Holvest has theological training, but his perplexed reaction was similar to that of Elise Spiegel, a radio journalist who went to Ted Haggard's New Life Church in 1997 to do a story for This American Life. Spiegel encountered something so alluring, even overwhelming, that the secular urban Jew was almost pulled in. After several days at Ted Haggard's church, Spiegel called This American Life's Ira Glass, who, as if he were a deprogrammer weaning her from a cult, had to convince Elise Spiegel that she really belonged back in her secular realm of origin, Chicago. From its early days, New Life Church's members worked to map out all the territorial demon spirits inhabiting Colorado Springs. At some point in the process, they fed the mapping information into a computer database. Methodically, street by street, block by block, they used prayer warfare to expel the demons from their city. And they maintained a 24-7 prayer shield over Colorado Springs to prevent demon reinfestations. As with inner-city cockroaches, the price of demon-free living was constant vigilance. Elise Spiegel called some of the practices she saw at Ted Haggard's church medieval, while Renee Holvast described this new way as incommensurable with modern Christianity. Conversations and discussions with some missionary colleagues did not seem to lead to mutual understanding. The usual evangelical ways of reasoning fell mute. It all seemed to be not just a different way of understanding, but a different way of reasoning altogether. 
In fact, at the very time Holvast and Spiegel encountered it, the new paradigm had just been invented. In the period of the late 1980s through the early 1990s, a group of quintessentially American tinkerers grafted new practices of spiritual mapping and spiritual warfare onto a peculiar and radical theological substrate emerging from the latter rain and healing revivals that burst out in Canada and North America during the late 1940s. They molded their hybridized new Christianity into a standardized package of ideas and practices such that, by the late 1990s, they began exporting the product from Colorado Springs to both the domestic American market and internationally at an astonishing rate. It was as newfangled as Henry Ford's Model T had been, and, like Ford's car, it quickly became established, even ubiquitous, on every continent but Antarctica. In 2009, one can now watch YouTube video footage of Christians from all over the earth practicing the same, very new form of faith that features the blowing of shofars and the Davidic dance, using very distinctive, recently minted theological terms. There was a common origin. For practical purposes, Colorado Springs was the Dearborn, Michigan of the next Christianity. Here's a clip of Haggard talking about the practice of grid praying, the form of spiritual warfare they engaged in here in Colorado Springs, from Spiegel's This American Life Story, which I've linked in the show notes. I love grid praying, where we walk, you have the parallel streets, and you put a person at the end of each street, and then you walk up and down that street, and at the end of every block you check, make sure your buddy's there, and make sure your buddy's there. Then you do another block. And you make sure your buddy's there and make sure your buddy's there. Then you pray another block. So you pray over every home, every business, every school, everything. And you realize, you know, if we weren't doing this, some of these people would never be prayed for. In the NPR segment, Haggard tells Spiegel that New Life folks started praying for others in Colorado Springs in 1985. And that led to a decline in crime rates. He also claimed that New Life had teams of men who would sit outside adult bookstores, like the First Amendment on Fillmore Street, and pray for the guys going in to buy porn. Haggard claims the prayers led to people stopping in their tracks and turning around. Spiegel also encountered the new jargon of Haggard's Christianity, discussions about the armor of God, powers and principalities, and my favorite line, standing in the gap. This is from Kristen Cobez Dumez's excellent book, Jesus and John Wayne. Those at New Life were aware of the strategic position they occupied. Colorado Springs was a battleground, a spiritual Gettysburg, explained one man who understood his own role in militarized terms. I'm a warrior, dude. I'm a warrior for God. Colorado Springs is my training ground. Like the military, New Life employed a rigid chain of command to ensure strict ideological conformity. Male authority and female submission were essential to that hierarchical order. The church also elevated the role of sexual purity, though Haggard insisted that purity didn't diminish pleasure. Evangelicals, he boasted, had the best sex lives of anyone. 
All this came together in a larger mission. Evangelicals who flocked to Colorado Springs shared in a mythical dream populated by cowboys and Indians, monsters and prayer warriors to slay them, and ladies to reward the warriors with chaste kisses. Haggard's New Life Church was a hotbed of militant evangelicalism. Together, Haggard and Dobson worked to spread the militant faith throughout the U.S. military. New Life Church is basically across the street from the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, which Dumez notes has been ground zero in a kind of battle over religious expression in the military since at least 1977. The Academy has been in the news recently after scheduling a mandatory training event on Yom Kippur, a very important Jewish holiday. The indoctrination of the military by evangelicals has been a recurring theme. We talked in our episode on Focus on the Family about how James Dobson convinced the Army to make his Where's Dad film mandatory viewing for all 780,000 active duty soldiers in 1983. New Life was taking its spiritual warfare to the Air Force Academy. David Antoon, a retired colonel and an Air Force Academy parent, is mentioned by Dumez. He'd seen cadets and families at the cadet chapel welcomed by a phalanx of enthusiastic pastors and recruited to Monday night Bible studies taught by members of New Life Church and Focus on the Family staff bust in for that purpose. The academy, Antoon realized, had become a giant Trojan horse for evangelicals to get inside the military. Efforts to address evangelical overreach were met with staunch resistance from evangelicals themselves, inside and outside the military. Under pressure from critics, the academy put together an interfaith team to promote religious diversity, but evangelicals up the chain of command rebuffed these efforts. When reviewing materials the team had compiled, Major General Charles Baldwin, Air Force Chief of Chaplains, repeatedly wanted to know why Christians don't ever win. Baldwin, who had a Master of Divinity degree from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and had served at the Academy's Cadet Chapel before taking up duties in Washington, also objected to a clip from Schindler's List because it made Christians look like Nazis. The scene was replaced with one from Mel Gibson's We Were Soldiers. With support from Focus on the Family's Alliance Defense Fund, evangelical chaplain James Glass brought a legal motion claiming that any effort to curb prayer or proselytizing was a violation of his freedom of speech. Focus on the Family denounced all criticism as unjustified and fervently hoped that this ridiculous bias of a few against the religion of a majority, Christianity, will now cease. Increasingly, evangelicalism was the religion of the majority within the armed forces. In 2005, 40% of active duty personnel identified as evangelical, and 60% of military chaplains did. As in other branches of the military, the presence of evangelical chaplains in the Air Force had increased significantly from 1994 to 2005, and evangelical chaplains brought with them a commitment to evangelism. Evangelism. Brigadier General Cecil Richardson, Air Force Deputy Chief of Chaplains and a member of the Assemblies of God, explained that chaplains would refrain from proselytizing, but we reserve the right to evangelize the unchurched. He distinguished the two by suggesting that evangelizing is more gently sharing the gospel as opposed to trying to convert someone in an aggressive way. It was a distinction without a difference. 
By 2003, Haggard and New Life Church were at their peak, but that would all change in the coming years. Left that place in ruin Drunk on the spirit and high on fumes Checked into a red roof and stayed up for several hours and then slept like infants in the burning fuselage of my days. Let my mouth be ever fresh with praise. He has fixed his sign in the sky. He has raised me from the pit and set me this is from Dumez. In 2006, male escort Mike Jones went public with the news that Colorado Springs megachurch pastor Ted Haggard had been paying him for sex for the past three years, the approximate period during which Haggard had been serving as head of the National Association of Evangelicals. Haggard, the pastor of the muscular angel-bedecked New Life Church, it really does have this weird, like, super muscly... Ugh, kind of homoerotic angel statue. Like, that's a big part of the church. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> pastor of the muscular angel-bedecked New Life Church had at the time been lobbying for Colorado Amendment 43, a ban on same-sex marriage. And it was Haggard's hypocrisy that prompted Jones to go public. Fellow evangelicals jumped to Haggard's defense. James Dobson accused the media of spreading unsubstantiated rumors in order to derail the Marriage Protection Amendment. When it became clear that Jones's allegations could indeed be substantiated, Mark Driscoll offered a different line of defense. Although no women were involved in this sex scandal, that didn't keep Driscoll from finding a woman to blame. It wasn't unusual, he explained, to meet pastors' wives who really let themselves go. Women who knew their husbands were trapped into fidelity could become lazy. Moreover, a wife who wasn't sexually available to her husband in the ways that the Song of Songs is so frank about might not be responsible for a husband's sin, but she certainly wasn't helping him. Wow. Um, so Haggard eventually denied or initially denied the allegations, but Jones actually provided a voicemail of Haggard asking for meth. Haggard claims he never actually used the meth, uh, but on November 4th, 2006, Haggard was fired by New Life. In 2009, new allegations against Haggard emerged, uh, and this is from a 2009 CNN article. Evangelical pastor Ted Haggard described Thursday as fundamentally true an assertion that he engaged in an inappropriate relationship with a 20-year-old male volunteer in 2006. Pastor Ted Haggard acknowledged on CNN's Larry King Live that he had a second relationship with a man. The incident occurred when the two men were in bed together, Grant Haas said in a videotaped interview played on CNN's Larry King Live. He pretty much asked me if it was okay if he masturbated in front of me or masturbated in the bed next to me, Haas said. I told him no, it would make me really uncomfortable, but he grabbed a bottle of lotion and started masturbating. Haas added, Haggard used to say to me, you know what, Grant, you can become a man of God and you can still have a little bit of fun on the side. 
Haggard, 52, said the incident was an indicator of the compulsive behavior that ruled him at the time. However, he said he has been undergoing therapy during the two years since and working it out. Controversy involving Haggard first erupted in November 2006 when a former prostitute, Mike Jones, said the pastor had paid him for sex over three years and had used methamphetamine in his presence. Haggard initially admitted in interviews that he received a massage from Jones, but denied having sex with him. He also said he bought methamphetamine but threw it away instead of using it. The assertions received widespread news coverage and sparked charges of hypocrisy, particularly because Haggard had condemned homosexual sex. Haggard is the former president of the National Association of Evangelicals, which claims to represent millions of people in 45,000 congregations nationwide. He was also the head pastor at New Life Church. In a settlement with New Life, the church and Haggard agreed that he would retain his six-figure salary for a year, leave the Colorado Springs area, receive counseling, and not speak publicly about what had happened for one year, according to a church staff member with knowledge of the settlement, but who was not authorized to speak on the record. In the CNN interview, Haggard credited Jones with having helped him by disclosing that information. I think he rescued me. I'm very grateful to him, Haggard said. He said he would have lost the support of his wife of 30 years, Gail, and their five children, and been a drug addict had he not been caught. I paid a heavy price. It was stupid, he said. Haggard likened his struggles with his desires to the struggles faced by dieters who say, I'm not going to eat today, and then they eat. Many of the charges against me are exaggerated, but it doesn't matter, Haggard told Larry King. I'm guilty enough of so many things. He acknowledged that his actions were hypocritical, but said he could not control his urges. I felt like God's plan was for sexuality to be in a monogamous heterosexual marriage, he said. I wanted that, but at the same time, I had these other things going on. Haggard said he had thought that focusing on his spiritual life would help, but found that it did not. It actually made me worse, he said. Haggard said that for a time, he lost the ability to read the scriptures and became suicidal. I think it was divine intervention that stopped me, he said. Asked if he was engaged in inappropriate conduct with any other men, Haggard did not give a direct answer, saying only, I have thoroughly discussed all of my sexual history with my wife and my therapist and, to some degree, the family, and we think that's an appropriate boundary for that. Asked whether he considers himself bisexual or gay, Haggard said that different therapists have described him in different ways. The first said, you are a heterosexual with homosexual attachments. I wasn't sure what that meant. His current therapist, he said, described him as a heterosexual with complications. Haggard said he has at least another year of therapy ahead of him. I think I'm still deeply wounded and scarred and somewhat confused, he said. About other men, he added, I have thoughts from time to time, but not compelling thoughts. Nevertheless, he said, today I'm 100% satisfied with my relationship with my wife, and I have no compelling things in my life towards others. He said he initially urged his wife to leave him, but she refused. I really do love this man, she told CNN when asked why she did not leave, but it was also her faith that led her to stick with the marriage, she said. The teachings of Jesus is that we forgive and that we love. She said the two had a great sexual relationship in our marriage, throughout marriage. Though the news of his unfaithfulness came as a shock, it wasn't completely out of the blue, she said. 
I knew that Ted had some struggles in this area, particularly in his thoughts. I never knew that he acted on them. Marcus Haggard, the couple's 25-year-old son, said he too was shocked by the revelations, but was more disturbed to learn that his father had lied. Still, he said the news brought the family closer together. He had lived so long on a pedestal, Marcus Haggard said about his famous father. He seemed practically perfect. There was a sense of relief in the fact that we could connect with our dad. Asked if he wants to return to the pulpit, Haggard said, I think Gail and I both want to tell our story to the degree that it's helpful to other people. I don't know that that would mean a pulpit, but certainly I'd be interested in public speaking. Worth noting, and not as justification for any of his actions, but Haggard was the subject of a September 2009 Colorado Springs Independent story, the Resurrection of Pastor Ted, which I'll add in the show notes, um, where he talks about the fact that he had been uh, the victim of sex abuse when he was seven years old. Um, in addition to those incidents, though, Haggard uh, was back in the news this summer with new accusations, accusing him of, among other things, making sexual advances toward a 16-year-old boy. Haggard has said that the new round of accusations are demonically inspired rumors. It's always demons with these people. Each morning you Each day shot through With all the sharp small shards of shrapnel That seem to burst out of me and you We will get there when we get there, don't you worry Feel bad about the things we do along the way But not really that bad We inhaled the frozen air Lord, send me a mechanic if I'm not beyond repair about to have a pretty serious tone shift in this episode. So I want to point out that it is really easy to look at some of the stuff that I do on this podcast, as the title implies, as fringe weirdo stuff. Admittedly, it definitely is. But it is also real, and it has very real consequences. These cults, faith institutions, self-help groups that I've talked about and will continue to talk about in future episodes have a very real impact, not just on local communities or politics or geopolitics, but on otherwise innocent people who get sucked into their orbit. There is a very, very real human toll here. So content warning, uh, today's story, while it has sensational elements like demons, homoerotic angel statues, and a methamphetamine and gay sex scandal, also has a mass shooting, a horrific act of violence that had and still has a profound impact on the victims and the community here in Colorado Springs. As a journalist, I am keenly aware of the excesses of my industry 
and the very valid criticisms of the true crime genre. Just hours ago today, a jury awarded victims of the Sandy Hook school shooting nearly $1 billion in damages from Alex Jones, who spread baseless conspiracies about the shooting on InfoWars. I'm not trying to do any kind of sensational rehashing of this tragedy, um, and I, I certainly don't want to speculate on the motives of the shooter, who was, by all accounts, uh, incredibly disturbed. Uh, but I think his involvement with both Youth With a Mission, which has, as we talked about in the last episode, a very real documented history of abuse, and the Ordo Templi Orientis, the occult order influenced significantly by Aleister Crowley, warrants some discussion, especially in the broader discussion and tableau of organizations that significantly influence their constituents. However, it is also important to note that the shooter's spiritual influences, which include YWAM and OTO, are pretty varied. Um, You know, he was baptized into the Mormon church a year before the shooting. He seemed like a normal person, maybe a little sheltered. That's how A.J. Ormond remembers the shooter in an interview with Utah news outlet KSL. I think everybody goes through, is there anything I could have done? Anything, Orman said. Orman met the shooter in November 2006 in Colorado. He wanted to learn more about the LDS church. Orman and his wife worked with missionaries in their ward. I think he was interested in learning about all religions, trying to figure out what fit him and his beliefs and finding somewhere where he could fit in, Orman said. Orman describes the shooter as polite and friendly, a young man who, despite his family's protests, was seriously contemplating devoting his life to the LDS Church. The shooter's experience with the LDS Church culminated with his baptism. Soon after, he stopped going to church, and just over a little over a year later, the shooter was dead from a self-inflicted gunshot to his head following a shootout with a security guard. On December 9th, 2007, the 24-year-old shooter, who I'm not going to name, first went to the Arvada Youth with a Mission facility at around 12.30 a.m. after a Christmas celebration event. He killed Tiffany Johnson, the center's director of hospitality, and staff member Philip Krause, as well as wounding two others. According to the Denver Post, the shooter had participated in several camps with King's Kids Denver, which does Christian outreach. The family that runs King's Kids Denver introduced the shooter to Youth with a Mission in Denver, said Paul Philidus, a spokesman for Youth with a Mission in Colorado Springs. They said he was a special case, Philidus said Tuesday, agreeing to speak after talking with King's Kids Denver director Ronnie Morris. After Youth with a Mission officials refused to send the shooter on a mission, the Morris family offered to talk to YWAM officials, but the shooter asked them not to, said Philidus. Morris's daughter Veronica said, We loved the shooter and we cared for him the best we could. The killings in Arvada followed a night of Christmas revelry by the young people training to be missionaries, said Peter Warren, YWAM director. The shooter arrived after the Christmas party, asking to stay at the dorm. He talked with staffers for 30 minutes before firing. That the shooter shot several people horrified Richard Werner, a missionary who bunked with him in Arvada in 2002. But it didn't surprise him. 
It was something you can't ever imagine, but it was so obvious after it happened, said Werner, 34, who now lives in Brazil. It's just because of the way he used to behave. Werner shared a dormitory with 18 other people, and the shooter slept on a bottom bunk next to his. Now a cook who ministers in his free time, Werner said his time with the shooter left him with some uncomfortable memories. One experience jarred Werner enough to note it in his diary. It was October 23rd of 2002, Werner said Tuesday in a telephone interview from Brazil. He was tossing and turning in the middle of the night, talking to himself. I asked him if everything was okay, and he said, I'm just talking to my voices. The response jarred Werner. I said, dude, you've got to be kidding, Werner recalled. And he said, don't worry, Richard, you're a nice guy and you have nothing to worry about. The voices like you. Another memorable incident occurred at a missionary Christmas party where attendees grouped together and some sang songs in the talent show atmosphere, Werner said. He just went up there to sing, and one of the songs he was I'm One Step Closer to the Edge, which really upset people, Werner said. The Lincoln Park song culminates with the anguished phrase, I'm about to break. When directors at the school decided in December 2002 that the shooter shouldn't join others on a mission trip to Bosnia, Werner said it was because people weren't comfortable with his behavior. He wasn't kicked out, he said. The directors had a conversation with his parents, and it was decided it would be better if he leave. The Denver Post article also included a bunch of his online posts, which I'm not going to read, but he alleged that he suffered abuse while a part of YWAM. Given the history of allegations against YWAM, it's definitely something worth noting, but I mean, also worth noting that out of all the survivors of YWAM programs, he was the only one to go on to commit a mass shooting. Carl Raschke, a professor of religious studies at the University of Denver, said he believes the shooter was under huge psychological turmoil. It seemed like he was involved in his own spiritual battle against the empire of Christianity, adding, adding that one of the screen names he used was taken from a video game in which characters battle evil demons. I would call him a defector from the spiritual warfare that he was brought up in, Rashk said. I think defector is maybe an apt term, especially given the shooter's interest in the occult. Uh, from the same Denver Post piece, Steve Mariner, the president of Denver's occult group Ad Astra Oasis, says Murray attended the group meetings for about a year before being asked to leave in September. Ad Astra Oasis is an officially chartered body of the Ordo Templi Orientis, a ceremonial magic order based on the teachings of English poet and mystic Aleister Crowley. He was a mostly quiet kid. He's mostly a he was a mostly quiet, geeky young man, Mariner said of the shooter. He was a skinny little kid. He was your typical I like college over cars type. He was a voracious reader, as far as I could tell. I never heard him raise his voice. Mariner said the group of about 15 people realized over time that the shooter was not fitting in. It seemed like he needed some time to back off and evaluate himself, he said. We could summarize it as saying the personalities were not a good mix. Mariner said he was shocked when he learned he was the shooter. You are sitting there having a conversation with someone, Mariner said. We all have our little personality quirks, but you don't appraise them of being someone who would go off and do something this atrocious. 
The OTO, the Crowley stuff, it's all pretty weird. The Denver Post doesn't get into it, which, given the nature of the tragedy, is understandable. But, you know, why mention it at all? You know, if you're you're picking and choosing which sources you're going to include in the story, um, they made a pretty intentional decision to include the OTO people, but they really, like, glossed over a lot of stuff here. And also just a quick correction, right? The OTO isn't actually based on the teachings of Crowley, per se. Uh, the OTO was originally a German occult group based on Freemasonry and incorporated elements of, like, Gnosticism and the Gnostic Mass and all that stuff. Um, I'm not a biblical scholar, uh, and Gnosticism is like a deep esoteric cut in terms of Christianity, which largely considers Gnosticism a heresy. So excuse me if I get the finer points of some of this stuff wrong. Um, I'm talking broadly here. But Gnosticism, which is from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know, is focused on kind of like secret or hidden knowledge. Elements of Gnosticism are in all kinds of secret societies. The Masons, the Rosicrucians, the Frankists, they all have kind of elements of, you know, this Gnostic influence. Um, one of the big points that a lot of these societies kind of cling to, and which I think appealed to Crowley, um, was like this Gnostic concept of sin. One explanation I've heard is the relationship between the, the spirit world and the physical world, right? And the physical world can't impact the spiritual world. So your earthly sins don't actually affect you. So, you know, sin away, basically. Um, I've also heard Gnosticism associated with the idea of basically sinning on purpose as a way of getting closer to God. You know, he, he can't forgive you if you don't sin, Right. Um, I realize I might be kind of getting this wrong or oversimplifying it, but I think this is, you know, kind of the main thing that causes conflicts between like the Gnostics and Christians, this idea of just kind of sinning or, or doing whatever you want with no real consequences. And, you know, the way it's framed, I, I would probably have to side with the Christians on this one. You know, the idea that you can just do bad stuff with no spiritual consequences or that you should do bad stuff on purpose to access some divine secret knowledge. Uh, it just seems like a really bad belief system. Crowley's mantra, which has been adopted by Wicca and, you know, other kind of pagan new agey spiritual systems is do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. I imagine Crowley adherents would argue that it doesn't just mean do whatever you want, but I don't know. I see it a lot in these weird groups where they have these bizarre sayings about things, and when people take them to their natural and awful conclusion, someone is always like, well, you're taking it out of context, which is pretty tedious. Uh, for what it's worth, I did reach out to the OTO chapter in Denver. There still seems to be one kicking around. Um, to see if anyone would, you know, be willing to talk to me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm basing a lot of this Crowley stuff from this book by William Ramsey, Children of the Beast, um, which, um, I don't know, in a lot of kind of parapolitics and conspiracy stuff, like a lot of it tends to draw on, you know, I, I don't want to talk back, but I mean, 
kind of there's some reactionary elements here right like a lot of the the satanic panic stuff comes through in a lot of these texts that a lot of people look at like you know i wouldn't you know like if you're you're really kind of curious and like a, a neutral sort of approach to i you know kind of occult stuff like william ramsey probably isn't the guy for that but um his book does have like 55 pages like the the bibliography the footnotes like there's 55 pages of just entries and texts and things that he's citing um so that's why i'm including it but i'm just saying right um you know i did reach out to the oto i wanted to kind of you know learn more about this crowley stuff and try to get a more i guess nuanced approach on it you know i'm always interested in chatting with folks who have i guess what you'd call extreme beliefs um, but they did not respond so Crowley himself was kind of a wild guy. He was a poet. He was a spy during World War I. Um, he was, you know, a lifetime drug user and a prolific writer. Some of his writings, like Book of the Law, were allegedly dictated to him by these demonic entities. He traveled a lot and did weird ceremonies in lots of places, including Egypt, and elements of Egyptology appear in... Um, a lot of his stuff. He claimed to uh, have summoned various entities like Lamb, who looks like a gray alien. A lot of what Crowley and the OTO were into were what you could call sex magic. In 1920, he moved into what they called the Abbey of Thelema in Sicily. It was a restored farmhouse near some ancient Roman ruins. He painted the walls with pornographic scenes, installed altars and pentagrams and all that, and did a bunch of weird stuff. This is from William Ramsey's book, Children of the Beast. Unrelenting debauchery pervaded the abbey. One guest was offered a goat's turd on a plate, which, not to be like pedantic or whatever, but I mean, I'm, I'm very familiar with goats and uh, their products right and like it seems like like they don't have like waste in the way that dogs or cats do it's it's more like deer or rabbits it's just like little pellets um anyway um another ritual involved the sacrifice of a virgin goat the horns of which represented iwas or the devil an attempt was made to mate the goat with leah hersig who was uh crowley's wife or partner at the time uh, but the goat would not comply crowley immediately slit the goat's neck spurting blood over the naked back of hersig blood from the sacrifice animal was used to create the cakes of light for ritual use while at the abbey crowley recounted his life in dedication to the devil with the following entry in his magical record i am to thee the harlot crowned with poison and gold, my garment many-colored, soiled with shame and smeared with blood, who for no prince but of wantonness have prostituted myself to all that lusted after me, nay, who have plucked unwilling sleeves, and with seduction, bribe, and threat multiplied my stuprations. I have made myself rotten, my body venomous, my nerves hell-tortured, my brain hag-ridden, I have infected the round world with corruption. Crowley was kicked out of Italy by Mussolini, 
which seems funny, but I don't know if that is saying much. Like, obviously, reactionary fascists would be opposed to some weird drug-using poet who is into bizarre sex rituals. But also, a lot of fascists were really into the occult stuff, like Crowley, and even they couldn't stand him. So who knows? Um, Crowley was also very opposed to Christianity, obviously. Um, in his book, The World's Tragedy, Crowley wrote, that religion they call Christianity, the devil they honor, they call God. I accept these definitions as a poet must do if he is to be at all intelligible to his age, and it is their God and their religion that I hate and will destroy. There's also a wild story about Crowley doing something with a baby, according to Nina Hamnett's book, The Laughing Torso. Crowley has a temple in Cephalu in Sicily, that was the abbey. He was supposed to practice black magic there, and one day a baby was said to have disappeared mysteriously. There was also a goat there. This all pointed to black magic, so people said, and the inhabitants of the village were frightened of him. Crowley sued Hamnet for defamation, but lost, so make of that what you will. The point here, though, Crowley is maybe not the guy you would want to base like your personal spiritual belief system on. Uh, people who do base their belief system on Crowley's stuff have a habit of doing some really bad things. Uh, I'm not going to speculate again on what level the shooters stint with the OTO, which sounds like it was brief, but long enough for them to get to know him played in his actions. Plenty of other Crowley fans like L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology and its offshoots, the Process Church of the Final Judgment. And to an extent, the Manson family certainly did some awful stuff. Uh, at approximately 1 p.m. on December 9th, hours after killing two people at the Youth with a Mission facility in Arvada, the shooter went to the New Life Church in Colorado Springs and killed Stephanie Works and Rachel Works in the New Life parking lot before he was shot by New Life security volunteer Jeannie Assam. The shooter then took his own life. Why he chose New Life is unclear, but a letter was later found in his car alongside a copy of Mike Jones's book, I Had Something to Say. This concludes our series of episodes on evangelical groups in Colorado. It's easy to see how people's faith in God, or even just their desire to find spiritual meaning and purpose, can be corrupted and used by bad actors. It's important to note, however, that not all cults have to have a spiritual element. Sometimes, a cult can just be a bunch of weird stuff from a charismatic speaker. Next time, I'm going to invite you all to join me at a random co-working space in Denver, where I am going to share something with you that is going to unlock your true potential and change your life. Tell your friends and family, invite them too. 
it's going to be life-changing, the single most impactful podcast episode you will ever listen to. Until then. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or tell a friend or whatever it is you do with podcasts. Um, You can connect with us on Twitter at at Western Fringe, W-S-T-R-N Fringe, or drop us a line at westernfringe at protonmail.com. This episode was brought to you by Odds and Ends Emporium, a woman-owned toy and gift shop located at the Ivy Wild School in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Visit oddsandendsemporium.com to see their wide selection of unique toys and gifts. Until next time.